Welcome to Palace Confidential, the weekly podcast all about the royal family where we assemble some of Britain's most fabulous experts and commentators and delve into the news coming out of the palaces to keep you royally clued up. I'm your host, Joe Elvin, editor of the Mail on Sunday's You magazine. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple and Google. And if you haven't already, why not sign up for the daily Mail Plus briefing at mailplus.co.uk, where you can also watch Palace Confidential on video. Hello and welcome to another episode of Palace Confidential. Yes, your weekly look at all things royal, brought to you from Mail Plus HQ right here in Kensington. I'm Joe Elvin. As we sat down to record this afternoon, the news broke that Prince Charles is self-isolating after contracting COVID for the second time. Everyone here at Palace Confidential wishes him a speedy recovery, of course. And of course, this week, all eyes are on Charles's wife, Camilla, as a rather large announcement was made about her at the weekend. The Daily Mail's royal editor, Rebecca English, joins me. Rebecca, this was quite the development from our discussion last week on whether or not Camilla should be called Queen. So it was a very another timely uh, discussion on Palace Confidential, wasn't it? And uh, a bit of a shock for me as I was sitting at my kitchen table on Saturday, I'd been told to expect an email from Buckingham Palace with a message from the Queen to mark uh, the start of her Platinum Jubilee celebrations. But obviously, uh, neither myself or any other royal correspondents were quite expecting that. And uh, I think it was a bit of a squeak of surprise as I read down the email because tucked away at the bottom, there was this this bombshell that uh, the Queen had made very clear that she had come to a conclusion on Charles and Camilla's future. And really, it was her express wish that Camilla becomes Queen Consort uh, when uh, her son eventually accedes to the throne. Um, It's something we've talked about a lot, as you know, and uh, I think probably was on the cards at some point, but we didn't quite expect it on Saturday. This became the big story, but it was a huge weekend for the Queen. Uh, What else came with the celebration of her accession? Well, it's important to stress that the Queen doesn't normally mark Accession Day because, of course, it's the the day her really beloved late father, King George VI, died. But obviously her and Buckingham Palace uh, accept that this year is really rather special as it also signals the start of her Platinum Jubilee uh, celebration. So we saw a whole raft of pictures and moments with the Queen, more than we've seen in many a month. She was meeting local dignitaries and local community groups in Sandringham and there was a wonderful new portrait of her with her red boxes undertaking the work she does day in, day out, which is going through her official papers. Um, and uh, she looked to be on a really excellent form, I have to say say you know slightly older slightly frailer than the last time we saw her but she's a woman approaching her 96th birthday so I think that's understandable and she looked at actually I thought uh, given everything that's happened in recent months uh, in really very good form. And the response on the Camilla news from Charles's sons was interesting wasn't it? William said he was supportive but there was hardly any gushing praise while Harry has been silent. Yeah, I think it's quite important to stress at the start of this that apart from the Prince of Wales, we've seen no official reaction from members of the royal family. It's just not really the dumb thing. Um, You know, they'll have a chance to congratulate the Queen on her long service during the course of the year and to kind of congratulate Camilla on becoming Queen Consort when she dies is it's just a little bit distasteful so obviously the Prince of Wales reacted uh, formally to it because he needed to but we we haven't heard from the rest of the family now I spoke to contacts of mine who told me that William was supportive of the Queen's decision it's a very difficult situation for him it's really conflicting for him because of everything that's gone on in the past but he respects his grandmother and his father's judgment and if that's what they want to do 
then then he will accept and support that. Um, I think there's been a bit of unfair criticism, I have to say, of Harry for not saying anything, because I go back to my previous point that members of the royal family haven't been. So so why should he? Um, you know, I know there's been lots of reports about deafening silences from California, but I think that's pretty unfair in this case. And the Mail commissioned an opinion poll with JL Partners this week, didn't they, that showed that people were largely in support of the move. I actually think this poll is really interesting because uh, previous polls, as we discussed actually on the programme last week, haven't been particularly good for the Duchess of Cornwall. Uh, I don't think it's active, people actively dislike her, but, you know, people do have long memories. But so this this poll for us, which I think really was the first national uh, and officially professionally commissioned poll that there has been on the subject, showed that the public supported her becoming Queen Consort by two to one, which I think is incredibly positive figures. It also shows her approval rating has gone up, as have a lot of other members of the royal family. So it sounds like based on that, and obviously we need to see how it goes over the coming months and other what other opinion polls reflect. But based on that, it sounds like the Queen did make the right decision. Thank you very much, Rebecca. Lots to discuss there. But before we go to my panel, let's have a reminder of the course of Charles and Camilla's unconventional relationship. Love's young dream. 
To discuss all this and more is the writer and historian Dr. Tessa Dunlop and her old sparring partner and diary editor for the Daily Mail, Mr. Richard Eden. Welcome both. I don't know if I've got the strength today. Are you going to play nice? We always do. Always, always. I'm sure we'll agree on the Camilla-Charles relationship. Well, let's see, shall we? Tessa, now... It's easy to be blasé about a little title change from princess consort to queen, but it's a big deal, isn't it? Yeah, and something that I think behind the scenes Charles has longed for, really from the get-go. Um, and it's sort of a victory by stealth, uh, effectively. And in many respects, I think I, I, I feel for them, I, I feel this is... <laughs> probably the right move, the fair move to make. They were encumbered by being in love with Charles trapped in an institution designed to preserve tradition, convention, not instigate change in a period when we've never seen so much social change. Yeah. You know, they would have, I think, married in the early 1970s or at least given uh, their relationship a bit of a shot had it not been for the carbuncle that was, oh, we're the House of Windsor. So I think um, it, it's not, it's, it was ghastly, in the words of my mother, what happened over the preceding 20 years, but not entirely of their making alone. Richard, we did discuss last week the impact of Harry's book. Do you think that some of this move is... is you know, premeditated in heading off any complications from any revelations in that book? I think it is really, yes. I mean, it's something which Charles has wanted for many years. And I think any resistance to the idea of Camilla becoming queen it is dissipated, really, by this announcement. It means, you know, most people think, well, if it's good enough for the queen, it's good enough for me. And, and it will make a huge difference to public opinion, I think. I mean, remember last week we spoke about how only 14% of the British public thought Camilla should be Queen. Um, but I think that will change. We've seen it already. It's starting to change a lot. And I think the Queen will make the difference in that regard. Let's talk about the princes for a second. Now, the, the responses from Harry and William were interesting and have, have sort of raised conversation but do you think that they were bypassed from this decision making process uh, the silence is interesting i mean harry didn't from what i gather he hasn't even sort of said congratulations on a, on a 70 year reign not even a sort of you know repost of the queen's statement as you know our servant which is how she signed herself off and, and i thought that was a sign really that he's got himself in a bit of a knot Hasn't he? He's a bit rabbit in headlights at the moment. What, what do you reckon, Richard? I just think, I mean, wasn't it incredibly selfless of the Queen to make this announcement? It was her big day. It was the accession day. It should be all about her. And instead, she's made it about Charles and about Camilla. And it really seems to say so much that, you know, all the headlines then became about Queen Camilla. And it's, it's really why we valued the Queen so much. I mean, I, I think with Harry... Now it doesn't really matter. You Do you know, not think it matters what what this, you know, particularly the next king thinks about this? I think um, certainly it does, and I think we've had supportive noises certainly been reported that it's something that William supports. But in Harry's case, I think the book will be um, there will be revelations. It's all going to be about his feelings about his marriage, about um, his parents' marriage, and how that affected him. So it is going to drag it all up again. But I think this announcement by the Queen means that that's kind of by the by. It's not, it won't have any great impact. I wonder to what extent 
the Queen. I mean, I know we hold her up there as exemplary in 70 years of service, etc. But she doesn't also feel some remorse that, you know, times have now changed. Looking back, you know, she couldn't be expected to lead that change. That's not really the role of the monarchy. But I, I do think there's a bit of compassion around what happened to Charles. Or do you think that there's just a bit of resignation that she can't, you know, t times have moved on around her? What, what does it say about the state of modern monarchy in the times we live in that well, she's it's, a bit, it's, it's been a really tough gig for the queen she has lived in peace times and naturally sort of the leader the colonel in chief of the army you know that that you know, weirdly war always perversely benefits a monarchy in, in, especially if a victorious war whereas the queen's had not only peace times but massive never seen before social change so it's not just charles remember it was her sister margaret yeah. it seemed crazy within a matter of years that margaret hadn't been allowed to marry peter townsend and the same again and then the, and of course the, the main the main victim was diana but charles was also kind of but i mean there was a bit of weakness there as well he could have arguably led but look how edward tried to lead on the on the front of who he wanted to marry and he ended up turfed out it's, it was a real tricky one i don't normally sort of like get in with my awe in these things but my opinion on this is I feel like it's one of the greatest love stories of modern times. They were, they've clearly been in love all this time. Don't you have any sympathy for the fact that this is the couple who should have been together all along? Well, they are together and she, they are, and oh, so Richard, let her be queen. she will be queen. Where's your yeah. compassion? Yeah. This was unrequited love. This is kind of, I mean, if we look at Meghan and Harry as victims of the institution, arguably Camilla and, and Charles and Diana as well. They were all victims of this rigid institution. There was still this weird idea in the 70s. You had to be a sort of fairy virgin princess. Well, I think Camilla was always going to be queen. You know, if you're married to the king, you are the queen. That, that was the way it is. They just came up with this sort of formula of, oh, she's going to be princess consort. And it seemed to be just a sort of bit of an underhand way of getting well, around That's the thing. Don't you think that was a, a placating placeholder yeah. for society to, yeah. to warm up to her? Yeah, and Charles yeah. Never, um, never liked that. And, I mean, we heard from Harry and Meghan, I think one of their bugbears was that... Um, Charles seemed to care far more about acceptance of Camilla than he did, you know, any of their problems. But of course, because that takes precedence, they're going to be the next king and consort. But, but it's interesting because I don't know a single person with divorced parents who then, the, the, you know, they, the, the mum or the dad acquires a partner. It's inevitably try and oversell the person that you've later on in life fallen in love with and the children are like oh stop selling your partner to me dad you know that is just standard family stuff mm. isn't it let's bring rebecca english <laughs> back now rebecca you've been on an engagement with camilla today what's the response been yes yeah, so excuse the kind of slightly industrial background but actually i've been on a really significant engagement with the duchess of cornwall today she's been visiting a a haven centre in Paddington, which is basically a centre for people who want to report sexual assault and rape. And it was an incredibly moving experience. She spoke to three women with different experiences of this issue, including actually the former Love Island star, Zara McDermott, who has twice in her life been the victim of revenge porn. And they had a very interesting discussion about the issue, about how she is using her very significant social media profile to try and highlight uh, the issues surrounding this and where women and men can go for go for help. You could see the Duchess had so much empathy with them. Uh, it was an incredibly open and powerful conversation. Uh, it, as you know, it's something I've, I've spoken about quite a bit before in this programme. It's an issue she's campaigned long and hard on over the years to use this kind of convening power she has as a member of the royal family 
to shine a light on what's needed in this in this kind of area. William's on a foreign trip too for the first time in a long time. Well, as I'm recording this, actually, the uh, the Duke of Cambridge is in Dubai. It's his first foreign trip. I think he's undertaken since we all travelled with him to Pakistan in December 2019 from memory. So it's a long time in the coming. He's there to publicise UK success stories abroad. He's visiting Expo 2020 in uh, Dubai. He's also been out in one of the mangrove swamps that the um, Crown Prince uh, is creating uh, to highlight some of the environmental work that's going on out there and he's also brought with him some of his Earthshot finalists to try and highlight these incredible ideas that we heard about last year in terms of a really practical work to try and save the planet so it's a whirlwind trip he arrived Wednesday night and he'll be flying back out by Thursday evening but he's packing a lot into it. Harry, however, has been looking closer to home when it comes to his work. He's been speaking about continuing his mother's legacy and finishing her work with those living with HIV. Yes, he is. So this popped up overnight and he was uh, taking part in a video conversation with Gareth Thomas, uh, the Welsh Welsh rugby star, uh, who uh, very openly came out. Uh, about his own HIV diagnosis some time ago. So Harry and Gareth Thomas are are long-term friends. And obviously, Harry has really taken up his late mother, Princess Diana's mantle on the whole issue of HIV and AIDS. And uh, he was talking with him about trying to, again, to to really kind of destroy any remnants of stigma around this and encourage people to get tested regularly. It's something Harry has himself done on camera, get tested because it's so easy, because they want to try and uh, ensure that there are no new cases of HIV by 2030, I think. And you also had an update on where the royals will be living in the future. Yes, so Game of Thrones is what we wrote in the mail this week. So we had an exclusive story about how uh, Prince uh, Charles is definitely going to be living at Buckingham Palace uh, once he becomes king. There's been a lot of conjecture to say that he doesn't really like living above the shop like the Queen does, but we've been told for a fact he is. He believes that uh, monarchy HQ, as they call it, needs a monarch in it. Uh, And also I've been told quite intriguing that it could mean that Windsor Castle will go to the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge uh, when the Queen um, eventually uh, passes away. Um, there, there's lots of kind of, there are a lot of rural residences and they need to use them, but they obviously need to use them widely. I mean, I think that some things are still being worked out, but it's um, uh, it, it's quite intriguing, actually, I think, especially the aspect of uh, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge living at uh, Windsor Castle. Just going back to the Mail's poll now, and there were a couple of interesting things that while the Queen, the Cornwalls and the Cambridges are all up, funnily enough, Andrew and the Sussexes are all down in popularity. Do they or their teams pay much attention to these things, do you think? Well, I think when it comes to the Sussexes and the Duke of York, the answer is flatly no. Uh, the Sussexes, are, you know, as I've said repeatedly, I just the UK is not their market anymore. They've got other fish to fry in the US. And I think the Duke of York's opinion ratings are pretty predictable, given everything that's going on. But what is encouraging that other members of the royal family are uniformly up, you know, it, it is a battle for them to stay relevant in the modern age to say relevant in rapidly changing times but it seems to be uh that they are doing a good job and that seems to be reflected in the opinion polls i want to hear from my panel again now and richard if the sussexes are polling so badly with the public here what impact do you think this has on their commercial deals is it a bad sign well uh 
I think it's all about their popularity in America now, isn't mm. it, really? I don't think opinion polls back home... I mean, you know... But are they popular in America? Um, that's S certainly a lot of Americans tweet us every week going, we don't all love them, you know? No, so. <laughs> I think that, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'd be interested to read a survey of sort of public opinion in the States. I mean, maybe it's that people don't know them so well. Um, so... <laughs> Tell <laughs> yourself, Richard. Well, I'm not sure that people in America are as familiar with Harry and Meghan as we are. I'm sure they're very, very familiar with Meghan. She is one of them. I think she, she's arguably surprisingly popular, especially with a slightly younger audience. I know yeah. people talk about Meghan as if she was some sort of, you know, superstar or something before she married Harry. Most people didn't know who she was. I think there's a lot of indifference towards them, and I think that's acknowledged by the couple who are making these efforts to sort of befriend, you know, genuine Hollywood stars like um, Tom Holland and Zendaya to try I, I and think that's wishful thinking boost their on your popularity. Part. I, I really do. I think you underestimate the appeal of the royal family in America and then the idea that an American might pick off one of the peaches. I mean, Harry, OK, he's got red hair, but I mean, he was, <laughs> he, he was the, the king charisma, wasn't he? And she just plucked him away. She had a fairy tale wedding and off they are stateside really doing the regal gig without the, well, the, the history of the institution. But they're having a shot at it. And I think there is something in that that the Americans find kind of... Why not? You know, make, make it, it's that sort of Arthur Miller dream. With apologies well, to all of our redheaded viewers, including my mother. Yeah. And including but, our uh, producer, but, our executive <laughs> producer. Tessa, <laughs> carry on. I was just going to say, the proof will be in the pudding. I mean, when they start actually doing some work and they start producing these long-awaited podcasts or Netflix programmes, you know, we'll see how popular they are. Um, they know that they need others' popularity but, of famous actors and so forth. And you know you'll so be listening, forth. Richard. But, yeah, and also, <laughs> Richard, they are doing work. If you consider the royal family working means going out and shaking hands and visiting a military centre or talking about domestic abuse, that's what Harry's doing right now. Well, what, what do you make of this statistic? The 40% of 18 to 44-year-olds who think that we should actually skip a generation and just go straight to William as king. You can't do that. That's not the gig of monarchy. Monarchy, you get what you're given, which is Charles. Well, hang on a minute. You just, you know, we were just talking about how great it was that we, we'd evolved the monarchy in the discussion about Camilla. <laughs> I know, but you can't pick and choose. It, it just doesn't work like that. Obviously, the abdication of Edward was an extraordinary kind of anomaly, which arguably the royal it, family... It, it is quite a significant amount of people who will not be out there flag-waving on the day that Charles is you know, coronated or is crowned. The interesting thing is people sort of weirdly feel a bit sorry for Charles because he has to wait so long for the throne. But as any of our famous individuals get older, we tend to get more fond of well, them. But the and I is, think he, he'll become more popular with think, old age. I hate to, this feels like a brutal question to bring up, but you know, his, his second bout of COVID mm. at his age, it just reminds you of the fragility of our senior royals, yeah. doesn't it? He's, I mean, he's waiting he's, a long time. He's not a spring chicken. Yeah. I have said in this programme before that I think that um, Prince Charles sh should abdicate in favour of his, his son. You um, don't understand history I've said, in that I, case. I don't think it will happen, but... It's just not this big a deal. In most other European monarchies, we've had people um, retire, such as in Spain, and then a younger person take over. I do wonder, at, at his age, what is the prize for Charles in being the monarch now? Why, why would he want it so much now? One of the reasons why the Queen seemingly hasn't put a foot wrong is because she's on the path. You know, you've got your red boxes, you're at the top of the titular tree, you know, you just crack on with it. And that's what Charles has lacked. What does an heir presumptive do? What, what am I allowed to talk about? Oh, my goodness, who, who can I raise money with or for? Whereas if you're in that top 
pin position. You just get on with being, you know, the, the, the head, you know, the, the titular head of the army, the government. It's extraordinary. And it's a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. It's hard to get wrong. But if, if he isn't as popular a monarch with the public, that it, does that kind of like lack of public support tend to get the Republicans circling? You only have to look back to the 90s to see... Yeah, and they'll circle and there'll be more of them. But remember, even if Charles had been exemplary, if there had been no nasty divorce, etc., nobody could touch the Queen because she ties us back to the Blitz, back to Churchill. She's this romantic, yeah. if you like, magic carpet that takes us back to a time when we believe Britain really was great. By the way, it wasn't. But we can believe it. Huh? And remember the Off key with her head. <laughs> remember the key thing is that even... You know, when Prince Charles does accede to the throne, it will be sort of almost in conjunction with Prince William. Prince William and Catherine will loom large and no decisions will be made without their support. But that's why I feel bad for King Charles. Oh, don't but worry. Any, anyway, but let's, He'll let's, be fine. He'll let's, look good with a crown. Well, let's quickly talk, Richard, about this spot of royal house swapping that seems to be going on. What, what can we read into that, if anything, do you think? I love all this, don't you, where they sort of decide about who's going to live where. Um, I, mean, I mean, it must be very taxing <laughs> figuring out which castle to live in. The rest it's, of us are yeah. wondering how to pay our heating yeah. bills. Yeah. No, it's great fun. I, mean, I do think there's a real paradox, because we hear constantly about how Prince Charles wants to slim down the monarchy. Oh, no roles for Prince Edward or Sophie, or because it's just going to be this really slim down. But there's never any talk about slimming down his property portfolio. I mean, quite the opposite. He's acquired palaces. He bought Highgrove. He, he saved um, Dumfries House, his stately home. Well, I, I, I got given a tour of Windsor Castle last week. I wouldn't give that up. No. Very nice. He doesn't <laughs> like Very it. Very nice. It's not the one Charles wants because of the, the aeroplanes oh, going over top. Yeah. Let's talk about Harry for a minute, Tessa. Following in his mother's footsteps with his call to get people testing for HIV. Yeah. Do you think that will have an impact? I mean, it feels rather left field to me, but apparently HIV numbers amongst straight people are on the rise. I think this, this is, again, is Harry working? At the moment, Harry would consider himself to be working, carrying on his mother's legacy, 35 years on from when Diana, you know, first made, I think she opened the first ever AIDS unit in Middlesex Hospital. What's interesting about Harry, and we can, you know, be read about him and say it's pointless, when he went for an HIV test in 2016, the Terence Higgins Trust saw a 500-fold increase in the numbers of people going forward for an HIV test. So to suggest that he doesn't have a ripple effect is naive and disingenuous. I think he was with the um, rugby player who's famously got HIV, Gareth Thomas, and they were kind of standing together, shoulder to shoulder. And, and, and Harry made one of those slightly unfortunate things that didn't make much sense. He said it was both our duty and our opportunity to get for everyone to test. Well, Harry, I'm, I'm quite a boring marriage. Do I really have to get tested for HIV? You know, yeah. so I, I think he needs to sometimes be a bit more careful about how he speaks. But I, I, I take my hat off to him. He's doing good works, isn't he? Yeah, well, it's good that he's staying in touch with Britain. I mean, it's a bit, it's a bit sad seeing him do these things on sort of Zoom calls when, you know, back in the day he'd be meeting people and, you know, using his charm and um, personality face to face. You can't have it both ways. You can't say kind of good riddance and then want him to come back. Do you well, want him I'm, to come back, Richard? I've never said good riddance. No, I don't he, think he'd Richard be welcome has back tomorrow. No, haven't you? He'd be welcome. You, you want know. him back? Well, Come it on. depends on the circumstances. Yeah. We should see if we can get him on the show. Yeah, that's lovely. Sure but that's, that's, that's made me feel warm now. <sighs> you guys, we've come to an end of another episode. I'm so sorry, but there's just enough time to say thank you to my contributors, Rebecca English, Dr. Tessa Dunlop and Richard Eden, and to you, of course, for watching. We'll see you next time. Goodbye.